Hello and welcome to COP26 Covered, ED's daily podcast show broadcast from right here at the heart of COP26, a show that I promise you is just as inspiring as a Barack Obama plenary speech. And what an episode we have in store for you today because I'm still here in Glasgow. You'll be pleased to hear that Matt and Sarah have made it back down south in one piece and they've been covering all of the day's big announcements on the main ED website, which has left me to get out and about and speak to a few people about how this COP has been going and some of the issues which you could argue need a little more attention at this summit. So, let's get on with the show. Yes, hello again everyone. It feels a bit weird handing back over to myself like that. But anyway, uh, here I am then in a a windowless hotel room just down the road from the main COP26 centre here in Glasgow. Uh, And today was, of course, the day which was themed around adaptation, loss and damage. So there were several high-level discussions held at both a political and a business level around the practical solutions needed to adapt to climate impacts and address climate loss and damage. And so uh, I kept myself busy with three interviews for this podcast episode, looking at three critical issues which were being discussed by business leaders and NGOs around the Blue Zone. And we start with the topic of the day, which is climate adaptation, loss and damage, because I decided to take a trip back along down the river uh, to the Extreme Hangout Ferry, uh, which some of you may remember from an earlier episode of this podcast, episode three, I think. Uh, And this is essentially a really cool floating events venue, which has been set up as a creative hub for young people to set their own vision for a greener future. And I was there this morning uh, for an event being hosted by the international NGO, the Rainforest Alliance. Uh, And this session was all about what adaptation, loss and damage looks like in the area of our forests. So straight after the panel discussion, I sat down with Saeed Abdul Razak, who's the Rainforest Alliance's global theme lead for climate change. And in our 10 minute chat, we discussed a host of climate related issues and solutions, including adaptation and mitigation, climate smart agriculture and natural climate solutions. Uh, So I think that's enough of an introduction. Uh, Enjoy this chat with Saeed Abdul Razak in full. Okay, yes, uh, here I am then on board the Extreme Hangout Ferry, uh, just along the river from the main COP26 zones. Uh, and I'm sat here with uh, Saeed Abdul Razak, the Rainforest Alliance's global theme lead for climate change, who's fresh off the stage um, after a discussion titled Integrated Community Forest Management, Protecting People and the Planet. Saeed, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, perhaps just start uh, with a bit of an explainer um, summary of the discussion you just had there on the stage. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm the climate change team lead um, for the Rainforest Alliance. And so we're here at the Extreme Hangouts, at the One, World, One Young World event, um, we've just talked about um, how the Rainforest Alliance works with um, different actors um, within like forest landscapes um, to make sure that we are able to, you know, have um, the opportunity of building um, healthy ecosystems um, which also contribute to um, climate mitigation but then building the resilience or adaptation of those who live um, near the resource. Um, and it's been an exciting, I mean, an interactive event um, where we have shared uh, the sort of like uh, approaches um, that we use um, and also in terms of the kind of achievements that we want to see based on our integrated community forest management work. Um, so. 
for instance, um, getting the local people front and center um, of managing natural resources, um, keeping habitats intact, um, restoring what we have lost or destroyed, um, but then also start sustainably managing um, what we have um, at the moment um, is those like those are the key things that um, we have just discussed here. Okay, and. Um I know that, uh, that forests obviously are fundamental to life on Earth. We were hearing that earlier. They're a source of air, water, food, shelter, medicine, provide livelihoods uh, for 1.6 billion people, we just heard. Um, and I know you've discussed this a lot already on stage, but perhaps you could briefly just summarise for our listeners how community forests can contribute to, to climate mitigation and adaptation and vice versa, and how to, how to essentially strengthen that linkage to achieve greater resilience for nature and for local communities. Yes, okay. All right, so um, engaging um, communities within, you know, the management of forests, um, taking into account the different um, needs um, that they have uh, in terms of livelihoods, but then also in terms of addressing the climate crisis um, is key um, because um, there's also that component of biodiversity that comes in. So, for instance, one of the things that we do is uh, around... Uh, agroforestry um, and you can have um, agroforestry as like riparian buffers to protect water bodies uh, but then also as integration of um, trees on farm um, and so having those trees introduced into a farm that initially had no uh, um, tree and it should be a crop that I mean a shade tolerant um, means that those trees are able to sequester um, carbon from um, the atmosphere um, into the terrestrial biomass but then also into the soil um, and then at the same time those trees then help the soil to you know be uh, uh, healthy um, in the sense that you have all these soil microorganisms that will thrive well because you have the trees there uh, it's able to protect um, the uh, um, land from like extreme weather events like rainfall um, and so then because the soil is compact because the soil has the necessary nutrients it means that this uh, um, community um, who live by the forest do not need if they are into agriculture for instance a lot of chemicals um, used within uh, um, this their lands um, which then increases um, emissions so having communities understand um, what the relationship between managing those resources and I mean there are a lot of indigenous people and communities who have been doing this um, already uh, but then making that link um, to understand also what the global good is in terms of emission reduction but then also in terms of adaptation so um, and like an area with well-protected um, resources could act as like windbreaks from affecting um, livelihoods, from affecting um, people's houses. Um, the same thing for other extreme events like extreme rainfall um, also. So yeah, these are some of the examples. Thank you. Um, so just, I guess, bringing this back round to where we are, Glasgow, COP26. Um, there's not many forests in this city, I should say. Um, but what are you hoping to come out of these talks um, that will really kind of support this conversation around climate adaptation and nature-based solutions to, to climate change? Are there any specific policies or announcements that you'd like to see? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've already had a lot of pledges, a lot of numbers, um, but then far away dates. Um, and I mean, one of the key things is that, yes, it's essential that we have um, to bridge the financing gap for nature-based solutions, because even though they represent um, one of the... Um, 
uh, avenues to addressing the climate crisis towards um, a below a two degree Celsius pathway by 2050 um, temperature increase. Um, what it is is that it hasn't got the necessary funding. So yes, hearing all these pledges is good, but then we actually need to see um, that funding happen. And already within mitigation and adaptation, um, we know that the financing is not as balanced as it should be, even though the Paris Agreement calls for that. So we need to actually see these monies uh, be mobilized, these monies be realized, um, to therefore go into uh, um, the nature-based solutions aspect. Um, also, in terms of, even though there are far away dates, we need to see interim um, measurements, interim measures, sorry, that need to be put in place towards reaching those um, faraway pledges that have been done when it comes to commitments around tackling deforestation or, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, um, stopping some uh, land-based degradation. So what are the interim measures we need to put in place to make sure that by the year in the faraway stage they've given, we are able to achieve, achieve those. So those kind of, yes, like critical um, policies or strategies or measures are also quite important to see and so that it's not just like um, what, what, for want of a better phrase like just you know blowing hot air um, yeah exactly yeah yeah and and just finally then I mean you've committed your your career and research to, to supporting governments and local communities NGOs and the private sector in the development and implementation of, of climate change policies at a national and international level um, so just on the kind of private sector point to round us off is there anything in particular you would like to see happening perhaps here at COP or discussions being had uh, or actions being taken at a, at a business level to to better support climate change adaptation and, and mitigation globally what would be your call to action based on what you've seen yeah i mean basically um at the rainforest alliance um we already started pushing for the shared responsibility approach so we already know of shared responsibility from you know the kyoto protocol um so the common differentiated responsibility which is between countries uh, but then at the rainforest we started to also ask or call for shared responsibility across supply chains um so you don't just get the farmer or the producer being the one to have to uh, bear the burden of sustainability or uh, measures, right? Because it also can be costly. So how do we then bring all these other traders, retailers uh, into into the space um, in order to then um, also support those measures that need to be taken on the ground at the production level, but also across the supply chain um, to make sure that we are using cleaner energy to make sure that we are um, in uh, engage in nature positive production um, actions and therefore be able to build you know a more healthy ecosystem a more biodiverse uh, ecosystem and also be able to then improve you know the uh, um, yield or productivity that comes out of this so yes basically this is what um, i want to see in terms of the private sector engagement so whether it is finance or whether it is technology or whether it is building capacity of all the of, of where they source um, their produce from um, these are some of the key things that we would like to see uh, Saeed, uh, this is a topic that really fascinates me and I know a lot of our audience. Uh, it's one that I could discuss with you a lot longer, um, but I'm aware there are lots of other talks to be had, including another podcast I've just seen um, that's going to be speaking to you, I believe, in a moment. Um, so I'll let you get back to those other conversations. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thanks again to Saeed and the Rainforest Alliance and also to the Extreme Hangout organisers for putting on such a great mix of fringe discussions on board that ferry. 
Right, now, sticking uh, with the theme of adaptation, we turn our attention to a topic which is ultimately fundamental when it comes to adapting to climate impacts and addressing loss and damage, and that is the circular economy. Some have said this is an area which has not got the attention it deserves going into this COP, uh, because I'd, I'd made my way back down from the ferry into the blue zone to meet with Richard Swanell, who is the international director at RAP. RAP is the Waste and Resources Action Programme, a British registered charity which essentially works with businesses, individuals and communities to transition to a circular economy. And like Saeed, uh, Richard was fresh off the stage, having just been sat on a panel within the America is All In pavilion here at COP26, uh, where he was discussing the hugely important topic of food waste. So I asked Richard a bit about how that session went, uh, and then we also discussed what needs to happen next to really start accelerating the shift towards a non-linear economy. So here's my chat with Richard from RAP in full. Yes, here I am then with uh, Richard Swanell, the International Director at RAP. Richard, hello, you've been a, a very busy man at COP. You've been speaking at a lot of side events and pavilions on the circular economy and, and, and food waste. Talk to us about that session you were just in over on the, uh, the US climate action stage. Yeah. So I've just been in an event where actually we were talking about the Pacific Coast Food Waste Commitment, which is a public-private partnership between businesses um, and with the state, the state governments in those and the jurisdictions in those areas to actually halve food loss and waste by 2030. And what was really fabulous about it was just you know we had Walmart and we had uh, one of the governors of the three states involved, you know, showing real leadership about having to deliver what is a really quite ambitious target. You know, we've got nine years to halve food loss and waste uh, from now. So yeah it was just great and uh, what was the kind of key discussion points that came out of it then with those major businesses involved so uh, as we nearly always find when we're doing public-private partnerships is the crucial thing is measurement and data yeah increasingly securing commitment from businesses from food businesses to hard food loss and waste is becoming more and more of a no-brainer people, you know, people are thinking well you know why would I waste loads of food so what the critical thing then is how much have I got and what do I need to do about it? And so yeah, getting into measurement, and one of the things that RAP has done a lot of work on is consistent measurement, working out simple ways that companies can reliably and comparably uh, report their data, measure and report their data, so everybody can share experiences nice and easily. Once you've got measurement, then you have you know, the opportunity to say, right, that's a, the size of the prize, how much money can I save through reducing or indeed reusing or repurposing for another purpose or donating or you know, recycling all parts of the circular economy. Um, the, that data is fundamental to then working out the next steps. And once you've got that, the other thing you can do is you say, not only can I actually act on this within my own operations, but I can then look at how my supply chain can help me reduce food loss and waste, and how can I help my customers reduce food loss and waste. And also, how can I help my suppliers to do the same thing? Because what we're definitely not about here is moving the waste up and down the supply chain. We're actually talking about preventing it and making the best use of every morsel that's produced. Interesting. And um, we're speaking now, obviously, on Adaptation, Loss and Damage themed day of COP26. There's no circular economy day. Mm. Do you think waste and resource efficiency and management is being given the attention it deserves here at COP? Well, when we, when we came up to COP, we were sort of looking through and thinking, you know, where is waste and the circular economy here? Um, and what actually I've been struck by is that increasingly in the side events, it's everywhere. 
you know, every event I've spoken at, people have been using the term circuit economy and food system transformation. I mean, that is again and again, food system transformation is a big, big theme. So I think, uh, you know, people are sort of saying, how are we going to achieve the, the Paris uh, commitments without, you know, focusing on food system, which is responsible for about a, a 30% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and increasingly, I'm beginning to see that action is taken. And what's been also great is we're now seeing elements of that transformation have become part of the COP agenda and there have been some great announcements on that. So obviously end of deforestation is all about biodiversity loss and all about um, regenerative agriculture has that potential to help with that. But also the methane, uh, the methane commitments as well, you know, waste was part of that. Landfill and the emissions from landfill was very definitely part of that. And of course, what is the biggest cause of, of, of methane emissions from landfill? Food waste. So, you know, it's, I think we're beginning to see it coming in to this agenda. The majority of people we, we've spoken to, I've spoken to over the last few days here, have, have kind of talked to us about this recurring theme of turning ambition into action, mm -hmm. pledges into clear plans. Um, what does that look like from a circularity perspective, particularly here in the UK? So we have these big talks about kind of ambitions and what we need to be doing with areas like food loss and waste. What would you like to see happening in the UK at a, a business level to really start turning the dial on this circular economy conversation? Well, I, I think I'm, I'm fairly optimistic about the UK because we've, we've actually done some, collectively, done some great stuff. And we have the Courtauld Commitment, which is you know world-leading international uh, um, uh, partnership with the Year Award. Uh, actually, also the Sustainable Clothing Action Plan, SCAP, also won the, a global partnership with the Year Award. You know, it's seen widely as being you know exemplars of this type of approach. And also, the behaviour change side. I mean, with the recent work that um, UNEP did on the Food Waste Index that showed that food waste in the home is isn't just a, a wealthy country problem, it's a, it's a problem for the whole world, suddenly means to say that we all need to actually reduce food waste in the home, and behaviour change campaigns is a key way of delivering that. So I, I, I'd say, yeah, I mean, absolutely we've got to deliver on the commitments. I mean, the Courtauld Commitment 2030 is now going to halve greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. We need to make that happen. But you know, I'm confident that businesses are committed to doing this, and I'm confident that we'll see the same thing in Textiles 2030, and I'm confident we'll also see the same thing in the Plastics Pact. Uh, Richard, I said earlier, you're a very, very busy man. You've got several other appointments to go off to, I'm sure, so I'll, I'll let you go. Uh, thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Luke. Really appreciate the time. So, uh, by this point, it was mid-afternoon, and I must have walked a half marathon between the various COP zones and areas, uh, but I'm pleased to say that I had time to take a little detour once again to my favourite part of COP, which is, of course, the Action Zone. I was able to catch a breath here, recuperate for a few moments before meeting with one of my favourite people in the world, Solitaire Townsend. Now, Solly is the co-founder of the change agency Futera. She's a leading advocate for climate optimism and a general hopeful, positive approach to sustainability, which I think is what we all need at the moment. Uh, and I should mention that Solly is also the chair of ED's flagship Sustainability Leaders Forum. This is our annual summit style event, which isn't quite as big as COP26, but what it lacks in coloured zones, it makes up for in real high level leaders and interactive discussions and workshops. So our Sustainability Leaders Forum is happening on the 1st and 2nd of February in London, and I'd recommend you go and check out the event website at ed.net forward slash forum if you're interested in finding out more. Shameless plug out the way, Solly and I covered a lot of ground in our 10 minute chat here. We spoke about a number of really interesting issues, including climate fatalism, uh, action on the sustainable development goals, and the role of the advertising sector in driving climate action. 
So I guess the running theme of this chat was around some of those areas which need the most focus and the most action from businesses in order to make this COP a long-term success and ensure its legacy is a, a positive one for people and for planet. Hopefully that set us up nicely. Here's my chat with Solitaire Townsend in full. Solly, hello. Uh, how are you? I'm very well. It's week two and I'm holding together. <laughs> good, good, yeah. And we're sort of, I would say we're on top of the world, but we're under the world, aren't we, here in the action zone at, at COP26. Um, I suppose I should give you a, a proper introduction for our listeners. So Solitaire Townsend, or Solly, uh, is the co-founder and chief solutionist of Futera, which is a, an international sustainability strategy and creative agency uh, with offices in London, New York and Stockholm. Um, she's a long-time friend of Edie. Uh, and mine having chaired our flagship sustainability leaders forum for the past three years uh, so Solly as you say we've all been off our feet for the first week uh, we're now into the second week of COP26 um, talk us through first of all perhaps a way to ease us into the conversation a bit of a summary of, of the first week that we've had so far and, and how you're feeling both personally but also in terms of some of the announcements and commitments we're seeing coming into week two brilliant so um this is quite an unusual cop because technically it's not one of the big cops like paris where you expect a big new agreement but because of the moment we're in because it's 2021 because of the delayed cop because the pandemic it feels like a big cop so there's a lot of expectation here we knew what the some of the ndcs the national determined contributions were going to be but actually we got slightly more than expected and for me the biggest moment was India setting to go net zero by 2070 and I've had some people go that doesn't feel like enough and it's and it's not of course nothing is enough but it is a very big breakthrough to have India in this club and I think that's you're going to see the ramifications of that go through and of course the International Energy Agency has assessed that with everything going on here you know with a bit of double counting and a bit of undercounting it looks like if people keep their promises we might be on track for one 1.8 degrees. Now that is not the 1.5 that we should be shooting for, but it is a lot better than the over two degrees that we were coming into this COP with. So overall, pretty pleased about a lot of things and a lot of things which still aren't good enough and need to be moved faster. And um, you know, we were all out on the march at the weekend because it's not enough, and then we're all in here during the week trying to make it better. So specifically. Where is it not enough, in your opinion? Where are the kind of main areas that you're wanting to see the most progress in the next kind of few days? Well, the devil's always in the detail. So everyone's talking about Article 6, which is essentially the rule book of how do we actually make Paris happen? Because, you know, we've all been in this for a long time. You know, Futera has helped set a lot of these targets for big companies and others. And we all know that the, the, the the detail and the measurement and the reporting and the sticking to those promises is what matters. And so whilst we've had some great announcements and we need many more, actually we now need to roll our sleeves up and go, how are we going to prove that any of this is actually happening? Because when we say 1.8 is now in reach, it is if everybody keeps those promises. And so that's that's what hasn't been good enough yet, or, and, you know, or at least hasn't yet been shown, is whether we've actually got the robust mechanisms to do so. And that's coming from someone who's been around the COP world a lot. Um, but I also have a lot of uh, understanding and empathy for those who are outside of COP going, what, are you kidding me? We're still on 1.8, where's 1.5? And to be honest, we'd all like to see more of that. Indeed, and um, among the 
flurry of announcements and, and bits of research that have come out during uh, this COP was a very important study and, and, and bit of research from Ipsos and yourselves, your team at Futera, which uncovered shocking levels of climate fatalism among young people worldwide. So for the uninitiated, Solly, perhaps you could explain exactly what climate fatalism is and what your research found. So this was um, an amazing piece of research and so many thanks to Ipsos for having worked with Futera on doing so. Um, it's 27 countries, so a really significant global survey, over 20,000 people. And we were asking, do, does the world still think we can solve climate change? And actually the majority of the world does. Um, uh, over 50% of people are what we would call either soft optimists or hard optimists. A hard optimist is someone who thinks we can and we will solve climate change. And a sort of 41% of people are soft optimists, which think we can. I mean, we've got all the technology, we've got the solutions, and we might. We might have the willpower of doing so. Then you've got fatalists who think that we could, i.e. perhaps we've got what we need, but humans beings won't um, so you know that's 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 still sort of quite a defeated attitude but then you've got the fatalists and fatalists are 11% of the population worldwide which by the way is much bigger than deniers who are only 4% you wouldn't know that from looking at my Twitter feed but it is they're a vocal but for small percent so this 11% say that there's no longer anything which we can do about climate change those are not the people out on the streets because um, rage and anger still implies you think something can be done. This is a sort of silent, fatalistic um, approach and they're more likely to be young. In fact, it's one in five of young people worldwide now are fatalistic. I'll be honest with you, that terrifies me more than climate change does because climate change is chemistry and policy and it's incredibly hard but we know how to fix it. Fatalism is humanity and if we're losing that many of our young people to this deep sense that they don't have a future. There's a huge mental health cost to that. There's a huge social instability cost to that. And we need those young people to be working for, voting for, buying for a climate positive future. And if they don't think they've got one, we've got a problem. Where do businesses come into that conversation then? Because I'm equally shocked by it and there's clearly a role for everyone to be playing to try and turn that kind of perception around and what would be the kind of key message coming out of that for, for businesses? We actually we asked people around the world um, do they hear more about the problems or the solutions of climate change and overwhelmingly people over 63% of people are saying we hear much more about the problems than the solutions so number one we are not hearing those solutions to climate change and then we also asked people what makes them feel optimistic what do they think is working and a significant proportion again um, well over half say that new technology so particularly new energy sources wind turbines solar panels and electric cars make people feel enthusiastic but actually only about 30% of people think that business is leading that it that was much lower than I thought I thought we would have I knew we'd probably have some cynicism about government um, but I thought we'd have more sense that business was leading so number one we've got to do more as businesses we have to do more we have to move from a problem agenda to a solutions agenda we need to look at our products and our services not just our, 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 our how we organize ourselves not just our scope one and two but it's all about scope three now what is the impact and we've got to go beyond scope three 
and go actually not about how do we do less bad but how do we do more good we are we are the entrepreneurs we are the inventors we are the creatives how are we actually going to push our businesses to bring those solves into society because that that one in five young people are also your future consumer they are your future staff member and um, um, if we cannot activate the youth on the solutions we're going to lose them in this fight and in terms of those kind of solutions I think this connects really nicely to another of your campaigns um, which has effectively got off the ground here at COP which is the UN SDG in action campaign which I was taking a look at earlier I must say it's amazing what you've been able to do here it essentially is a, a global kind of heat map of SDG actions which aims to change the narrative at COP so again give us your elevator pitch Solly <laughs> of this product but let's be really clear this is not my campaign this is the UN's campaign yes. this is amazing work by the SDG in action team who have for some time wanted to move the entire SDG conversation so not just the climate but all the rest of the SDGs into how are we going to solve this that is the to-do list for the planet we've got our marching orders we know what we've got to do on each of those 17 SDGs and they want to flip the script from talking about just the problems that we're facing with the SDGs and really start making all of us focus on what the answers are and again a lot of companies try to talk about how they are minimizing their negative impact on the SDGs and going that is crucial and necessary but that is becoming housekeeping we now want to know how are you contributing not just to the SDG title but to the specific measurable targets under each one of those SDGs remember we've got over 80 targets with the SDGs measurable things we're trying to achieve and I want to see how are we bring solutions to that how are we flipping the script from the problem agenda to this solutions agenda and it's been such a privilege for the Futera team in fact you missed one of our offices off we've also got an office in Mexico City and we're doing a great deal more work in South America across Asia um, across Africa and in terms of how are we actually going to move this entirety of this global agenda towards the fact that this is solvable I could spend probably a good half an hour talking on each of these subjects with you, Solly, but I'm aware I'm trying to sort of skip, skim through the various initiatives. The third, the third uh, and final project I think deserves a mention is this Everyday Climate Heroes campaign. I think this connects into what we were discussing earlier about kind of raising awareness of the solutions and the, and the problem solvers and the people out there who are working hard to kind of change those perceptions. Um, talk to us a bit about this. So this is a new endeavour for Futera. Many of people listening actually might be Futera clients or have worked with us in, in the past because we're an agency and half of us are consultants and the other half are, are creatives. But this is a new endeavour for Futera, which is we've just started a charity called the Futera Solutions Union. Um, and this is to do campaigns that Futera thinks are really important and which maybe might not be quite the thing for our clients, um, although wonderfully so many of them supported us this time around. So Everyday Climate Heroes was um, this insight we had, which is when we watch the TV, when we watch the news, when we're on social media, the advocates of climate action are sort of royalty. <laughs> um, Prince, Prince William, Prince Charles and David Attenborough, these sort of, and politicians, this great and the good. And also at the other end, the activists, the Extinction Rebellions, etc. All of whom have got an incredible role in pushing for more to happen. But that's not the only people in this country, here in the UK, who are taking climate action. In fact, the people listening to this, the 
business people are taking climate action, mums are taking climate action, local volunteers are taking climate action. So what we did is we identified 10 everyday climate heroes. Some of them, uh, one of them's a, a aerospace engineer who's now working in the renewable sector, another is an ex-miner who's now a, a, a volunteer in green energy, a community gardener, a fantastic guy who runs um, a cycling scheme for, um, uh, for groups who don't usually get involved in cycling. And we identified these 10 people across the UK who are just symbolic of the things which everyday people are doing around climate change. And we very luckily managed to convince the preeminent photographer in the UK, Wankin, to take their photograph. So the photographer of the Queen and the Kardashians, um, uh, and we've 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 put their their portraits and their voices and their stories up on over a thousand billboards across the UK. You'll see them, Everyday Climate Hero, and that you might see some of their broadcasts on your TV coming up. Um, and this is because. Uh, if we really want people across the UK to feel that they've got a stake in this, that they've got skin in the game and there's something which they can do, we have to start raising up those voices, not just the voices... We have to start raising up the voices of the doers, not just the voices of the tellers to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And so apt. The timing is so apt, isn't it? Because obviously these... The, the higher level people are of course here and obviously kind of taking the limelight and perhaps rightly so but I think now is the time if, if ever to be really raising the profile of these kind of hidden heroes of the climate crisis. Please take a look at Everyday Climate Hero and watch some of the videos in fact watch uh, first of all I'd suggest watch Terry Pugh he's a he's a yes. uh, Welsh grandfather and if you don't if you don't tear up a little bit at watching Terry talk about why he's working on these issues um, uh, then then you know it's, it's what we all need a bit here at COP yeah, is that story. Exactly. Um, so the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was uh, the role of advertising in all of this which I realise seems like a bit of a random segue but um, I know it's an issue that you're really close to and you're chairing a session on, on this very topic tomorrow. Um, perhaps in your own words you could just summarise why the advertising industry holds such a critical role here when it comes to actually shaping and influencing change across the world as we as we come out of COP. So the advertising industry is like the grease in the wheel of all other industries on earth. All, the, all of the um, fast-moving consumer goods companies, uh, uh, including you know, all the oil and gas industry, all of the transport industry. They all depend upon the advertising industry to tell their story. I know, I've worked in this sector for 20 years. Um, and yet we never talk about that sector in terms of the responsibility of the sector itself. Now, of course, the advertising, PR, in fact, all the professional services sectors, um, indeed the media sector as well, like, all have got their responsibility to deal with their footprint. Of course they do. But their footprint is very small compared to that of their clients. As I say, the, the footprint of your average ad firm is smaller than a primary schools you know this is a few flights and some coffee cups um, but their brain print the brain print the 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 influence that they have over over behaviors over purchases over perception is huge and with all love to my fellow colleagues in this industry has not been dealt with so um, we're here talking about this massive opportunity the ad industry has to turn the dial on that fatalism to tell those stories to engage people to 
be the cheerleaders for solutions. That's absolutely what the ad industry can do. But also some of the problems the ad industry has, which is nobody knows who pays their bills. They work on some of the most progressive, amazing campaigns for some of your listeners. And they also work um, against you know, lobbying and, and working on advertising campaigns against climate um, uh, action as well and work for the oil and gas industry. So one of the things I'm going to be calling for here is a very simple thing, which is a client disclosure report which is where 170 other agencies like Futera have committed to doing these, which is where we create a simple pie chart of who pays our bills by industry. You don't even have to name your clients, just what industry they're from, just so we can begin to get a similar type of transparency from this sector, because it all starts with that honesty. And in fact, I know a number of clients are going to start calling upon their agencies to produce those reports because they want to see what company they're keeping in terms of the agencies they work with. And in that way, we can start cleaning up some of the negative impact this industry has, both in defending negative um, uh, clients and also over-promoting consumption and really move the advertising industry to what it should be doing, which is being the, the, the absolute architects of the solutions agenda and really selling that story and getting the public engagement we need for change. Where's that conversation happening? So the conversation will be happening here at COP tomorrow at 10 a.m. Right. It will be live on YouTube. It might there might be a bit a bit might be a bit spicy because there's 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 some some who disagree with this and who think that advertising should be neutral and it doesn't matter who you work for and all that stuff. So we're going to be we're going to be digging into that into that agenda. And I always think the advertising industry is like the little girl who had the little curl right in the middle of her forehead, and when she was good, she was very very good, and when she was bad, she was horrid. And that's what the industry is like. This industry has an incredible opportunity to do so much great work and tell those stories but it's also got some very unethical behaviors which we've really got to clean up mm. well i'm looking forward to that chat tomorrow um solly before you go uh, i mentioned earlier that you'll be once again chairing ed's flagship sustainability leaders Yay! forum in london <laughs> um so uh, while we're still in that kind of elevator pitch mode perhaps you could give us a quick teaser for uh, for what our attendees can expect over over two days in february so after everything that's happened here at COP, February is a perfect time for stock take and for us to gather together. Some of the speakers we've got, in fact, by the way, really well done on getting an amazing, diverse group of speakers this year. I think there is some voices which we haven't heard from before. It's not going to be the same old, same old. I'm particularly looking to Blue Water. I think that's going to be fascinating. And then we've also got some of the great grandees, uh, the Tony Junipers and sort of the Unilevers, etc., speaking as well. So I think we're going to have... Uh, a, a big stock take of COP and what happens next. We'll have had a bit of breathing room to decide where we're going and we'll be hearing from some of the companies and the voices um, who are going to dominate the next round um, as well as some of the familiar faces um, uh, and grandees of our sector. Solly, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure, as always. Uh, best of luck uh, with your advertising session tomorrow and uh, have a great rest of the COP. Thanks so much, Luke, and thanks to everybody who are doing everything which they can on climate. Um, and just so you know, the Blue Zone, it's, it's all a bit coffee and tired and bad light, so um, uh, don't be too envious of Luke and I sitting here. Um, I'd far prefer to be back at home in some ways. <laughs> yeah, me too. All right, thanks, Solly. Thanks, Luke. Thank you very much again to Solly and to all of today's guests because 
there you have it. That brings us to an end of episode 10 of the COP26 Covered podcast. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode which will take a deeper dive into the topic of innovation and what that all looks like for businesses in the context of some of these global ambitions and issues being discussed here at COP. So do make sure you're subscribed. We're publishing a fresh episode of COP26 Covered every day, capturing all of the big announcements and bringing you a range of exclusive interviews. You can subscribe to COP26 Covered wherever you get your podcasts. And for full information and audio links, visit ed.net forward slash podcasts forward slash COP26. But for now, as the curtains draw to a close on another day here in Glasgow, and I go for another day without any curtains or windows in this hotel room, I'll say goodbye and speak tomorrow.